Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Louis Giannis. He is the founder of WealthNet Investments and also the author of a new book called Financial Freedom Blueprint, Seven Steps to Accelerate Your Path to Prosperity. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Lewis. I'm glad to be here. Nice to be here, Jordan. For people who haven't heard about you before, just give us a brief history of how you got to where you are today. Okay, well, let's see. I, I got started in the investment management business in the early 90s. And uh, it was I started off as a financial advisor for a large brokerage firm, Kemper Securities. You might have remembered them. They were based out of Chicago. And uh, then I went on to get a CFA, and then I went to work for a hedge fund uh, as an analyst. So I did a lot of coding. We were doing uh, like algorithmic trading stuff before algorithmic trading was cool. And uh, this was like in the infancy of the internet. And so I did a lot of analytical type work, trading work in futures, stocks, bonds, and commodities. So I've kind of been around the whole gamut of the financial um, realm in terms of the capital markets. And then I uh, founded Blythe Lane Investments. I founded an RIA, which I sold, actually, and went to go work as a senior portfolio manager for U.S. Bank. And I uh, decided I really was an entrepreneur, so I really went, I bought my practice back, changed the name, and, uh, and thus uh, WealthNet Investments came into existence. So that's kind of a short, short and sweet uh, version. <laughs> and so tell us what WealthNet Investments does. Is, you, is it an RIA? You manage people's money, or do you do broader financial planning as well? So WealthNet is a registered investment advisor. Uh, we are purely fee-based, and we do investment management, but we also do financial planning. So we have you know, CPAs on staff, and we have uh, financial advisors. So we do the whole gamut. But really, the infancy of WealthNet started with the investment management world, you know, in the investment management world. Uh, that's really been my expertise most of my career. But as time has gone, went on, uh, in particular when I bought back uh, Blythe Lane, really the demand for financial planning accelerated. And people were asking me for more and more broad uh, planning topics. So I decided I was going to dive into it heavy. So thus, we started the 360 financial planning program. And uh, now we give much more broad advice. But our real real strength is in navigating in the investment markets over a wide variety of market environments. Because really, when it comes down to it, the financial planning is a must. But without the good investment management, financial planning can basically be worthless. So your book is called Financial Freedom Blueprint. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is it that you think people can achieve? We're going to go through the seven steps in detail. But overall... From where a lot of people are today, they do not feel financially free. You're saying if they follow your steps, they can become financially free. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because you actually get deliberate. And, you know, when you get deliberate and you start thinking things through, things can really accelerate, especially if you cut out a lot of the uh, kind of the excesses in your life. So I I think you can split, you can split up, you know, people are in different situations, so if somebody really feels like they're not, they're behind the eight ball and they don't really know exactly how to get to where they want to go, there, it could be a number, one, a number of issues that are causing that. 
Uh, for some people, the issue is something that's even more foundational than what's in this book. It has more to do with uh, getting your income, maximizing your income, and using your own unique ability and your own strengths so that you're getting that income level you need in order to save. So until you get to that point, then a lot of the steps that I'm showing here are going to be are not really going to be as effective. So that's really a whole other discussion. But this book is kind of assuming that you've gotten to a point where you, at least you could get started with saving. And, uh, and it does give you some ideas on how you can increase the saving. So the beginning of your book, you kind of talk about being, uh, kind of, I would call it non-traditional. You're, you're, uh, you were in the traditional Wall Street world, and now you're kind of not in it. You say there's a different economy that we're in. There are established rules you don't necessarily have to follow. Is that kind of what you're saying your unique proposition is, is to kind of not follow the traditional investment rules? Absolutely. I think that, you know, and I, I don't like to really badger Wall Street because, you know, technically I guess we could still be part of it. But I think that any kind of uh, commoditization of or packaging of these investments has wound up hurting investors. And I think people kind of get lulled into certain packaged products. They, they're sold very well. And some of the basic blocking and tackling gets lost. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are, are wrapped up in mutual funds and exchange-traded funds in particularly, uh, you know, a lot of indexing going on. And this is creating some irrational behavior and irrational valuations, which I think are going to come, once again, it has happened before, it will come down to hurting people's portfolios because people are making uh, decisions based on what's good for Wall Street, not necessarily what would be good for them personally and financially, personal financially. Let's specifically talk about index funds. There's obviously trillions of dollars in index funds, more and more all the time. Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, they have low management fees because there's not much to run them. What is wrong with putting money in an index fund where in the long run you typically outperform other actively managed funds at much lower costs? What's wrong with that? There's actually nothing wrong with index funds in and of themselves. I think if you rely exclusively on their on the index funds, that they could really hurt you. You know, I mean, I, I'll just give you one example. I remember in the dot-com era when we had that big melt-up, a lot of people were indexing then. Whenever you have a big bull market, you hear more and more about indexing. And this is not, I mean, it's not like this hasn't happened before. And when the market cracked, guess what cracked the hardest, the biggest companies that make up the index. You see, uh, indexes are primarily, not all indexes, but most index funds are what's called market capitalization weighted. So by definition, what that means is you have most of your money in the largest company and the most expensive companies. And when the market corrects, you actually have more of your money in those stocks that get correct very hard. So uh, it's, it, I think it's fine to have them. And we do have index funds in the money that we manage. We have a program called the Strategic Horizon Program, but we don't use it exclusively. There's definitely a place for it, but I think when you rely exclusively on it, it's, it's going to lead to trouble. We see irrational behavior. Stocks are not moving the way they normally move. You know, if, you're, if you're down in the, in the trenches and you're looking at the valuations, you're seeing groups being moved together, you know, maybe by industry or it might be by sector or by country, and it's moving all the stocks because people are hitting one buy button or one sell button that is 
moving money in a collective fashion. And here's the other thing. A lot of people that invest in those index funds, they underperform those index funds because they don't stick with them. When, the time, when times get rough, they get their risk tolerance wrong and they wind up losing money. So what severely vehicles, underperforming. What, what vehicles do you use in managing money, if not index funds? Are you doing only individual stocks or ETFs? What are the vehicles you use uh, in, in managing money? Pr- primarily individual stocks and some exchange-traded funds, very rarely mutual funds. But so, so we're of the belief that it's better to get properly diversified in individual stocks, at least when you get to a certain dollar amount. If, you're, if you have a smaller account, it may not make sense. It's not going to make sense for you. But when you build up a certain dollar amount, depending on your risk profile, it makes more sense to us to actually own the individual securities because we can have a reasonable amount of diversification. And statistically, the same amount of volatility and diversification of an index fund and have a better reward risk ratio because the, you can even diversify better. Because you see, if you, if you were to dissect the S&P 500 right now, for example, you've got the, the, the energy sector is a minuscule part of it, right? Just as an example. And you've got a massive amount of tech. You know, so it doesn't make rational sense to make your weightings, to, to do all of your weightings based purely on market cap. Yeah. Um, so what you said you have to have a minimum. What would be the minimum you would need to start getting into individual stocks? And below that, you probably would do uh, index funds. If you're in a balanced type of uh, investor, maybe just call traditional 60-40, 60% stock, 40% equity, uh, 40% bond, I would say that number is about $250,000. And mm-hmm. you could definitely do it with less, but the problem that you run up again, when you start doing the math, even though today... You know, you go to most brokerage firms today, you're not paying commissions, quote unquote, but there's always costs in order to, to trade. You have slippage costs, you have the bid-ask spread, and the markets don't, uh, you know, there's, there are costs associated to trading no matter what. And the other thing is the average price of stocks today are much higher than they were 20 years ago. You know, I was looking at a portfolio uh, recently, and the average price of the stock is $130 a share. So... You know, you're going to need to have, in order to get a reasonable uh, size, a reasonable number of shares, you're going to have to have more uh, money. And generally, in order for you to be diversified, say, just in the U.S. portion of a portfolio, you're going to need about 20 to 30 stocks, minimum. So that's the other thing. If Once you get past 50 stocks, statistically, you start hugging the benchmark. And there's, it's, a, it's just a mathematical fact. You seem to be down on bonds in your book. Are you still uh, saying bonds? Should, you're talking about 40% of your portfolio of bonds. Are you still believing in that? It should be a lot less. Yeah, I just use that as a kind of the starting point because that's kind of been the industry standard that people talk about for a balanced investor. Uh, bonds right now, uh, I think it's pretty obvious to most people, they don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, it's very difficult to put money into bonds from a return perspective. Really, the only reason to have bonds is really to mitigate, mitigate volatility and to get some diversification benefits. Now, in the past, in the recent past, it's been a real, bonds have been a real diversifier because when stocks have gone down, bond prices have gone up and vice versa. So they've really helped cushioned a lot. But if you look at it historically, the, the correlation coefficients between stocks and bonds is generally higher. 
So and looks and when I, we're looking at the rolling correlation numbers on daily vol, daily uh, correlation, you could see that that relationship is starting to change. So I think people need to be careful with that that relationship. But yes, we do, we still invest in bonds. You know, if I looked across, you know, most client accounts, there's you know between twenty and thirty five percent in bonds, various types of bonds. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Louis Giannis. Uh, he is the founder of WealthNet Investments. He wrote a book come out recently called Financial Freedom Blueprint, Seven Steps to Accelerate Your Path to Prosperity. You can find out more about him and his books at pathtorealwealth.com. We'll be back after this. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, and then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics, quantum computing, and much more, in the state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from the 46 IPOs or sale exits of their investments. Now you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in the innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fast-growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash answers. That's rcrowd.com slash answers. Today, you can invest in Intellect, whose transportation innovation could save the airline industry $3 billion a year. Intellect uses machine learning to improve safety, recognize hazards, and reduce delays. They are in use in major international airports, which serve over 100 million passengers annually. Invest today at rcrowd. Invest in Intellect at O-U-R-C-R-O-W dot com slash answers. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at rcrowd.com slash answers. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, 
all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Louis Giannis. He is the founder of WealthNet Investments based in Colorado. He's also the author of a new book called Financial Freedom Blueprint, Seven Steps to Accelerate Your Path to Prosperity. You can find out more about him and his books at pathtorealwealth.com. Welcome back to the show, Lewis. Thank you. So we're going to go through the seven steps briefly. The first one is to identify and prioritize objectives. Tell us how to do that. Yeah, well, it's you know this whole process of identifying and prioritizing your objectives is really a look inside of yourself. It's basically saying, okay, what's important to me and what what exactly am I trying to accomplish? I think a lot of people get hung up in this step because they don't know what they want and they're not clear. And in order to be clear about what you're trying to do, you have to kind of look at it from different dimensions. At least that's been our experience. You know, uh, you want to look at each one of your goals and try to figure out what they are and why. And it, what I found out is that if you look at them by an impact, like if you say look at each goal based on how it impacts my particular life, from how urgent is it, what, how does it affect my relationships, you know, is this something that I'm really passionate about, does this affect my health, et cetera, et cetera. Those types of scoring can help you think through your, um, your goals and, and prioritize them. I'm a big believer in actually being disciplined about it. But you also have to kind of look inside your, your kind of your emotional makeup to identify them. And one of the things I found to be the most effective is to think about what is dangerous in my world? What, what am I fearful about? Like what, what are the dangers I see? And what are some of the things that I'm really excited about that I, I see as an opportunity? And give you know, us an maybe example. some of my strengths. Give What's us an that? example of a danger that people might see and give us an example of an opportunity they may see. Okay, let's see. Okay, so... I'm trying to think of a recent conversation so I can make it kind of real. Um, so, okay, recently just had a client whose husband passed away, just passed away. So, and she knew that, you know, that was coming. So there was a lot of things that needed to happen there in terms of her goals. Her goals had to change, you know, from that standpoint. And it was, it, it, it was kind of unexpected at first, but then she had enough time to kind of figure that out. That would be a danger. Probably one of the most common dangers that we see is people who are about to retire, people are who maybe are in their late 40s to mid 50s, and they're really trying to set themselves up to land the airplane safely, if you will, and they are not prepared, and they see a danger of not having enough money, or they see a danger of maybe not having uh, their health care situation set up, like long-term care. We don't do, you know, sell long-term care, any of that kind of stuff, but we, we really like people to look at the whole angle of what, what those dangers so are. How do people react when they see a danger? They think they're not going to have enough money to live in retirement. How do people react to that? Do they get more aggressive and try to make up for what they should have done with higher returns? Do they become more conservative? What is your experience, people, how they react to that danger? I've seen people do both. Most, the biggest thing I've seen people do is freeze. 
uh, most people usually freeze when when they have too many dangers in front of them. So it's really our job to actually help them think through it and to take action, you know, towards what they're trying to do. And a lot of times people just need to adjust how they go about their goal. They have a preconceived idea about how things should be, but really it's, you know, they could make some minor changes and it's, it's not that difficult for them to achieve that objective. You know, so and your, your second step is to get organized and gather data. This doesn't sound mm-hmm. like it's particularly fun, but I guess it's necessary to do. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't uh, figure out where you're going to go unless you know what, what, you, what you have. And it's amazing how, how people, I mean, I'm talking CEOs of major corporations that don't know what they have. I mean, it's amazing. It, it goes from, from all areas of sophistication financially, not knowing exactly what, where, where they're at. They may see balance sheet and income statements from their CPA, but not real clear about what that means, you know, like, you know, how things work together. So really just going through, looking at all your assets, your liabilities, your income, your expenses, you know, taxes, all those types of things. You got to start with that. And then step three is to analyze the situation. Is this something most people are able to do once they see where they stand? Usually not. Usually not. I mean, I just recently met with a CFO of a company and, uh, you know, this particular person knows a lot about finances, right? But 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 he's in the corporate financial world, so he could easily catch on to what you know what the rules were. But it's it's one of those things where you really usually need help, and it's usually a team. You know, you need a, a CPA, you need an attorney, uh, investment person, and a financial planner at a minimum. Uh, and and when you get all those heads together on the same page, that really can help you get the full picture. And then step four is to develop realistic solutions by evaluating alternatives. Again, is that something most people can do? Usually not. Usually not. I find actually most people find that to be the most valuable part of the process. Once you get passed over that initial hump and you've got everything together and then you can actually run scenarios of different options, it becomes easier and easier to figure out what I want to do. You know, because you see, you see it in black and white what the what the range of of outcomes are likely to be, and nobody has a perfect crystal ball. But we can do analysis to give ranges of outcomes, and just to really manage the risks and get the highest probability of success. That's really the goal there, and to also make sure that it's within the lifestyle that person's lifestyle. You know, making sure that that their life is fulfilled in every way possible. Then your step five is to develop your investment policy. Uh, mm-hmm. This is like uh, just what would go into an investment policy? Well, usually, you know, once you have an idea about what the goals are, and you can have different investment policies for different accounts, but it basically has your return requirements, you know, starts with your goals, then your return requirements, any kind of a your risk profile, what your temperament is, how much risk you can afford to take versus what your temperament is for risk. And then it also, you know, looks at how liquid your portfolio needs to be, how much income it needs to generate, and any kind of taxes or legal constraints, things like that. Then your sixth step is to implement your plan. Do a lot of people make a plan and then don't end up implementing it? You know what? Not, there, there used to be, I think traditional financial planners used to do see that a lot. I remember, you know, in the early 2000s and stuff going to – Certified Financial Planning Group, you know, those CFP groups. And I would go in and I've, I've, I've spoke to those groups as well. And I remember hearing that a lot. It's like people will do a plan and 
They would just, it would just sit on the shelf. Um, but we don't really experience that because people are educated and motivated at that point, and they, they really knock it out. You know, I, I, we just don't see that very often. If they've gone that far, if a person has gone that far, they generally implement it. I think when they don't implement a plan, it's when somebody is hired as a planner just to do a plan. You They're might see that more often. They're really not invested in, in it. Yeah. And then your seventh step is to monitor your progress. So how, how much monitoring do you need to be watching the markets every day and reading the Wall Street Journal? What do you need to do to monitor your progress? Now, really, really monitoring progress is quarterly and annually. You know, uh, really, most progress is made year by year. So, so the way I look at that is you should have a, an annual minimum look at things in terms of, not in terms of what was my performance and all that. Yes, you look at your performance, but you really look at that path of wealth of where should I be total wealth right now and wh how did I, where am I? So like that's at a very, very minimum, especially if you're just getting started out. Um, when you're, if you're further along, you have five million bucks or more, or two million bucks. You know, you want to, you want to look at it much more often. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really depends on the person too. If that person's a, excuse me, a delegator, then they're better off to, you know, just have quarterly reviews with their advisor or annual reviews. But you don't really have to review it that often. Now, the managers who are managing the assets need to be managing it and monitoring continually, you know, the, the risks and the rewards as, as it goes along. I mean, in one single day, you can have things, you know, the day after Thanksgiving, there's a bunch of discussion about, you know, COVID, another variant of COVID, and then the market sells off, you know. So does that really mean anything, you know? Um, but, you know, a manager should be really in tune to position sizing, risk management, and all of that on a day-to-day -day basis. But in, in terms of the investor, an individual investor who's got another career uh, or is retired, it doesn't make sense to monitor that often. So what difference would it make in people's lives to do those seven steps compared to not doing those seven steps? Probably most people never get around to those seven steps. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it a lot. And I've seen people do the seven steps, but then they, they, they don't want to follow through, you know, but that doesn't happen that often. But uh, I would say the biggest difference is you first gain confidence and clarity. So you first you kind of see what you're trying to do more because once you get it laid out, something magical happens. You start seeing, you know, all your your assets laid out, and you start seeing what th those goals look like and how much you need to save, uh, and how you should invest. And and most people start getting excited about it. And then as time goes on, it it actually gets even. Uh, I would say the biggest thing is people feel more at peace. In fact, recently we did a survey. We had a third-party survey done with clients. And one of the, I was shocked actually. Uh, one of the largest things that people, or most often thing that people said it was that they felt at ease or they felt peace of mind. They felt like they knew where they were headed, you know, that kind of thing, which is not what I expected. I was thinking they were like happy with the returns and they are happy with the returns, but that's not what it is. That's not, the, that's not the main thing that this does. The main thing that it does, it gives you a sense of, okay, I'm doing the best I can with the cards I've been dealt. And that, that's another point I wanted to make. So, you know, most of our clients are wealthy, but there, some of our clients are not as wealthy. And for people who are trying to attain financial freedom, you know, you have to realize that the most important thing for you is to just do the very best you can with the cards that you have been dealt. Yeah. 
Very good. We're going to take another break. Mm-hmm. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Louis Giannis. Uh, he is the founder of Wealth Net Investments based in Colorado. He's the author of a new book called Financial Freedom Blueprint, Seven Steps to Accelerate Your Path to Prosperity. You can find out more at his website, pathtorealwealth.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Louis Giannis. He is the founder of WealthNet Investments, based in Colorado, author of a new book called Financial Freedom Blueprint, Seven Steps to Accelerate Your Path to Prosperity. You can find out more at his website, pathtorealwealth.com. Welcome back to the show, Lewis. Glad to be here. We have a, a chapter called Throw Away the Dartboard. Does that mean you're not supposed to be predicting the future at all? What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, really what, what Throw Away the Dartboard is about is starting to think more like a doctor or more like a scientist when you invest. Because a lot of people shoot from the hip when they invest. You know, it's about the story. It's about they've heard a tip or, you know, somebody tells them that this is a great way to invest. So maybe you should buy this stock and things like that. Instead, what we really support and promote is to think like a doctor. Think of like a trial for a drug, for example. We're trying to figure out uh, how efficient this drug is, how well it works. We want to do double blind tests. We want to look at the data. So instead of just going by your gut or by the story, we want to have both a fundamental story as well as using factors that have been shown to add value. So the, and there's a, there's a myriad of factors and it depends on what kind of investment that you're talking about. 
but there's a myriad way, of ways of looking at factors that will help you lead you in the right direction so that you can find or increase the probability that an investment will do well for you. You asked the question, does buy and hold make sense? And we've had a long bull market here. It has made sense to hold on for the long term. Is that still the case? Yeah, I, I think in general, you'd like to hold the longest you possibly can. So you would like to be in the best investment that you know continues to move higher for the longest period of time and not pay any taxes on it. That would be the ideal but unfortunately, that's not how the market works. We have these big uh, big moves, and then those moves turn into chop. So you may also know that I have a background in technical work and quantitative analysis. So there's a lot of work that we've done when you're looking at you know kind of cycles in the market. Like right now, we're definitely in a you know very high valuation type scenario. And you don't know how long these are going to last. So the momentum will continue as we have the liquidity. But eventually we'll have a correction. It could probably be ugly. We might go into some kind of a chop. So I don't think buying and holding always is the answer. But there are times when it is. So would, if that makes what, sense. What would be a trigger point for you? We've had a long rise in the market. Interest rates have weighed low for a long time. What, in your mind, would be a trigger to upset this market in some kind of a major way? Oh, that's a really good question. So uh, back in 2000, I wrote a chapter in a book called Risk Management, the Handbook of Risk, actually. It's published by John Wiley. And I wrote this chapter called Converging Correlation and Market Shocks. And I listed out the key things, the key common things that you see when the markets are about to have some turbulence. And we're honestly, we're seeing a lot of that today. Uh, one of the things that you want to look at is a high concentration of assets that are going into a particular type of investment vehicles, and people are just blindly investing in them. I would put indexes in that category. That is happening. Uh, you also want to look at what is the Fed doing. Is if the, if the Fed starts changing their direction from easing easing to tightening, that usually leads to turbulence. And the, although they the Fed hasn't done done tightening in a big way. They definitely are starting to talk, at least, about moving in that direction. Uh, so that's one thing to, to consider. But there's a, a myriad of things you'd want to look at. The, the biggest ones that you want to look at are increases in volatility. So, you know, just watching the realized volatility, when that starts increasing, that tells you a lot uh, that, that it could be more turbulent. And then also to look at high concentration and also a lot of margin and leverage. We have a tremendous amount of leverage right now. So, so how, how do you factor a kind of exogenous uh, force like the pandemic? And, uh, you know, it came out of the blue and the, the market fell sharply and then it recovered. Now we're not sure if it's going to be coming back with this new variant. How do you factor in uh, something that's not market related, but it could really affect the economy and investor psychology? Oh, we, well, with risk management rules and position sizing discipline. So, you know, I'm thinking of the Asian contagion that happened years ago. It was a similar type scenario. This was more sharp and deeper than the Asian contagion was. But, you know, basically we started hitting our risk management rules and we're getting more into cash and the fixed income securities. And uh, it started reversing pretty quickly. So we didn't have a very huge drawdown. And actually, before the pandemic actually came out, we were already paring back in our portfolios because we were getting other indicators that were not even pandemic related. 
So this is one of the things that I think surprises a lot of people. Everybody likes to hear a story, but listening to the market itself is extremely powerful because there's a lot of collective wisdom. The, the collective wisdom of a lot of actors in the market can lead you to early warning signs. And we, even before the pandemic hit, we started getting a drop in breath. We started seeing problems. So What do you, so, what do you see so right now? Helps. Do you see some similar things right now? Yes, we are. So actually what we're seeing right now is more of a speculative market that's likely to really get out of hand on the upside. That's what I think we're in right now, but we're showing the beginning signs of that, of that. You know, we've seen rotation and rotation and rotation. You know, if you look at the stocks that have been going up, you'll see, you know, uh, it hasn't been uh, a value-oriented, rational-oriented market. It's been, you know, when, when it's risk on, everybody's buying the Amazons of the world, the big caps. You can see the index flows happening. And then as soon as you see any kind of fear, you're starting to see the rotation into the value stocks. But the problem that we're having right now is even the value stocks aren't value stocks anymore. You know, you look at, if you go, you know, through the value scores, we run these quantitative uh, scoring on, on the markets and the individual securities. And even the ones that are relative value are, you know, uh, if you try to dissect them on a discounted cash flow basis, uh, basis and say, what kind of return am I expected to get? You're getting, you know, 7%. Yeah, and normally you want to get more than that. I'd be interested in your view on cryptocurrency, which is super hot these days. Not only Bitcoin, but many different coins are coming public all the time. It's siphoning off money from gold. Uh, is is that a a healthy or an unhealthy view to have this surge in cryptocurrency investing? It's healthy if you own it and you're making money on it. And uh, we have we do own cryptocurrencies, well, Bitcoin, and we also own gold. So, uh, so here's, here's our thinking on that, is we want to have non-correlated assets to the equities, uh, and, or we want to have some protection for any kind of a kind of money problem. And I think one of the biggest risks that we have is an excessive money printing problem. So there's a, a ton of reason why you should look at those. But when I look at it from a long-term perspective, I have a lot of doubts that it's going to be viable in the long run because... Governments have the guns. Governments can government can outlaw things. So you know we'll see what happens. So far, it's been a pretty good trade. So how we're I'll just tell you what we're doing with it right now. So we have positions in gold, precious metals, as well as in uh, Bitcoin, and we're volatility scaling it. So what that means is that if a Bitcoin makes a big rise, then we're pairing back from Bitcoin and re reallocating that money into gold. So uh, recently, we just had had that happen actually again it's happened multiple times uh but I, I think if you had to put a gun to my head and 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 you know and you could only buy one gold or bitcoin i would buy gold so do you think that bitcoin has taken away some of the luster of gold people in the past might have bought gold as an inflation hedge and now doing uh, bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies absolutely absolutely yeah if you if you listen to both sides of the argument you know the gold bugs versus the bitcoin uh, I would call them Bitcoin groupies. You know, I I learned from a client that I had who was extremely smart. He had an economics, he was an economics guy, you know, economics background. And one day he came to me, this was uh, during the, just before the dot-com thing blew up. He said, you know what, there's groupies in the market. You need to understand what the groupies are doing. But you also need to understand what the un underlying reality is. So, uh, and sometimes we can't, and it's not knowable, right? We can't always know. Uh, we, we live in a, 
world where we have imperfect information and imperfect understanding. So my perception on it is that Bitcoin is in a scenario where you can make a logical argument for Bitcoin in terms of like why it's better than gold because it's electronic and all these things. But the reality of it is that it could be bla- it could be outlawed, you know. It, it, and I know that you've probably heard that argument before. Uh, gold, on the other hand, I don't think gold is likely to go away. And I think there, I think a lot of people have gone that direction with Bitcoin primarily because of the momentum. You know, there's some people that I know that are really smart that got in really, really, really early. You know, and um, they they're kind of scaling out of it. But the pe- people that have huge positions in it right now, you know, it's in their best interest for them to push the price of that uh, that commodity, if you want to call it that, higher. What, you know, you're you, talking it, about it, its underlying situation. What is the underlying situation that's driving Bitcoin other than just momentum? Is it uh, fears of inflation? I think it's fears of inflation. I think it's fears fears of not having control over the currency, you know. And uh, when when it when it first started coming out, my my biggest comments I was making was that the government will not allow somebody else to take control of the money supply, and I still stand by that. They're always going to want to have uh, control over the money supply. They'll come up with a Fed currency, and somehow somehow it'll be just like any other trading vehicle, like a like a futures contract or something like that. I mean, but, you, know, you can China is going to come out with their own uh, China cryptocurrency instead of having Bitcoin. And other countries may do the same. There may be a European one. Would that advance or detract from existing cryptocurrencies? I think initially it will advance it, but ultimately it will detract. Because, uh, you know, I, I think what will happen is, is that, why? Uh, yet, I mean, this is the logic that I'm going through right now. And it, hopefully I'm right. We'll see what happens. I think that as these governments take on the crypto kind of uh, structure, if you will, that they're going to basically want that to be the adoption. Why would they put that out there? Well, for two reasons. One is it's it's a great accounting system, and they can keep track of everything, which means that taxes can be controlled much better. So I think that's a big motivation, which I don't know. I don't know that you could say that's a good thing. And the second reason is because they don't want something that they don't have control. The government doesn't want some uh, decentralized. Uh, set up to be to take control over the monetary system. So Indeed. to me, the the prime motivation would be to have more control of accounting of all of the factors of production and and buying and selling of goods and services, and then you know therefore having control over taxes, and then yep. also to not not get uh, not to lose control over the money supply and and money flows. You know, money nobody wants money to flow out of their country in big in a big way. Yes, very good. All right, we're going to take a look, another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Louis Giannis. Uh, his book is called Financial Freedom Blueprint, Seven Steps to Accelerate Your Path to Prosperity. His website is pathtorealwealth.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? 
Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Louis Giannis, author of Financial Freedom Blueprint, Seven Steps to Accelerate Your Path to Prosperity. His website is pathtorealwealth.com. Welcome back to the show, Louis. Glad to be back. So we're talking about the current economic situation. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve for a bit. So they've had a very easy monetary policy for a long time. Lately, they've started to pare back their bond purchases a little bit. They're talking about raising interest rates next year. What will be the impact on the market and economy of what the Fed's doing now? I just don't think the Fed has a lot of room to do a lot of tightening. Um, They would like to tighten, but it because of the current scenario that we're in now in terms of just printing a lot of money and you know and if rates went up it would hurt a lot of businesses it would hurt hurt credit it would hurt home prices i just don't think they have the wherewithal to to tighten as much as people think that they would or, or as much as they would like to so what what really needs to happen is spending needs to be uh, brought down that doesn't seem to it, be happening right now. <laughs> it's not happening, and it will not happen, most likely. So we have to go with the assumption that the cycle that we're currently in will continue, and that cycle is we spend a lot more than we bring in in tax revenues. That deficit cannot be sold in terms of bonds. You can't have uh, you know international you know other countries buy those bonds. So basically, the buyer of last resort is the Fed. The Fed prints money out of thin air and buys those bonds. And that just puts more money in the system. I mean, that you can do that for a time. This is something that has been done before. That we have lots of different names for it. We can call it QE or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's basically monetizing the deficit. It's dangerous, exactly. So, so on top of that, we've just passed uh, the $1.2 trillion hard infrastructure bill. And it's now passed the House and in front of the Senate what I like to call the soft infrastructure bill, the social spending bill, which is roughly $2 trillion. Say that gets passed. So what would this roughly $3.5 trillion in new spending uh, do to the economic scenario you're talking about here? Well, I think we just have more of the same of uh, printing more money. I think that what could happen is that the bond market will no longer allow rates to stay low. The bond market will move on its own. And the the government will not be able to the Fed will not be able to actually control it. You know they they they're not they don't actually fix interest rates. They have some interest rates they can fix, but those interest rates are really no longer uh, uh, part of the monetary policy scheme anymore, like the discount rate. So it really the scheme now is just 
just sopping up extra, you know, bonds. So I think what would happen is we could lose, if this gets really out of hand, one scenario would be that foreigners lose, you know, we basically lose reserve currency status. And what that would, would be the worst case. What would replace the dollar as a world reserve currency? Man, that is a great question. Uh, dare I say the yuan? Uh-huh. Uh, not, bit, not Bitcoin, huh? Well, that would be what people think would like. I think there's a lot of people that would like to see that happen. Maybe, maybe, maybe that does happen. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that's kind of an outlier event. So I, that's why we have some Bitcoin, just in case that does happen. So, so, so you're saying you, you do not think this is a particularly good idea for the government to be spending the three and a half trillion on both hard and soft infrastructure. Is that what you're saying? No. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I don't, I don't think we should be spending that kind of money. I mean, we're spending way too much money. As, it's, as it is right now, if you look at, and I don't have the actual statistics in front of me right now, but if you look at the portion of our overall economy that is driven by government activities, it's a very large percentage. We've actually surpassed you know, the point where now it's kind of a, a, a reverse compounding problem. I mean, we have so much interest on the debt, it's very difficult for us to actually reverse this easily. No matter how you look at it, we're going to have some pain somewhere down the line. Either the pain's going to be from further devaluing of the dollar and loss of purchasing power, which kills the middle class. The middle class gets decimated with that. Uh, or we're going to have, uh, you know, austerity, which is going to also hurt. But in the long run, the austerity is a better option because then the market can, the economy can reset and, uh, and we can actually get rational economic actors in the, in the market again. Will will all the spending create much higher inflation? I mean, we already have inflation of over six percent annual rate on the consumer level. Is all the spending going to ratchet up even more inflation? I think it could. I think it could. Part the inflation we're seeing right now is partially su supply constrained because of the pandemic issues and some, you know, that kind of stuff. But part of it is also just printing money. It's kind of both right now. So even if we start opening everything up, I think the worst thing that could happen actually right now is that we overreact to COVID again. I think if we do that, now obviously if we get uh, you know some variant that is extremely deadly that we have to do these things, but if we get like minor, you know, the data starts coming in, and so far the data that I've seen has been that, you know, this new variant is not that deadly. Like no one's died from it. I don't know all the details yet. We're still learning, but if if it's kind of a mild thing, uh, kind of how it is now. If we overreact, that could be really bad for our economy. It could plop, plop, plop us into a recession very quickly, actually. Yeah. How about the entitlement programs that the government has? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, people don't seem to worry about these things, but they're, they're running deficits pretty soon. Are you worried about those at all? I think that they'll continue to, to write those checks, but those checks will be worth less and less to those people, those recipients. Mm -hmm. I mean... You look at the, the inflation numbers we're getting now, I think we got a, what was it, a 6% bump up in, in Social Security? But right. inflation is running faster than that. People are not keeping up with inflation. So even though, you know, people are saying, hey, look, wages are going up. Well, the wages aren't going up faster than the inflation rate. So what are the investment implications of the higher inflation you're looking for here? Is that good for some areas of the market? It would be bad for bonds, but where, what, who would benefit from uh, more inflation? Well, our, our strategy is to invest in companies that can have pricing power. 
So there's there's an inelasticity of demand. So they can they can go in and they can move prices higher. We like to have invest in companies that are in that position, and then also invest in you know hard asset related companies. That's one way to also benefit from that. Just give us some examples of company with pricing power you're talking about. Well, I'll give you an example from the from the uh, from the gaming area and the tech area. Nvidia has been a great holding in that area. You know, it it generally has to be something that's special situation, something that's niche. You know, healthcare yep. we you know used to typically be the pricing power sector industry. But that's not necessarily the case anymore now. Regulations are getting tougher and tougher. So it's really more about going into special situations. And I make that argument in the book that, that you really have to go more narrow in your thinking. That's one of the reasons why I don't like indexes. Yeah. In the roughly two minutes we have left, why don't you kind of summarize the opportunity and the danger? You talked about opportunity and danger in the current circumstance. Well, I think the opportunity right now is to go narrow and to find innovative companies that are adaptable, that have products and services that are in high demand, and to you know own those companies and differentiate away from the herd and step in front of the herd, basically, and to own those own those stocks that are part of the future. The innovation is where it's going to be at, and that's where everybody should be focused in. There's a lot of you know, larger companies that were part of the past that are trying to innovate, but they're going to be, it's slower for them. And those companies that can adapt and, and uh, be part of that bigger, better future, those, that's where you want to have your money. And as far as the dangers, I would say the biggest danger right now is losing purchasing power by putting, being too conservative, not owning equity type assets, whether that be real estate. And by the way, I think real estate is also a place to put some money as well. Uh, you know, so in fact, I just bought a place in Texas because I you know, want to own some. I live in Colorado, but I just bought a place. Another place As in an Texas. inflation hedge, you're saying for real estate? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the other thing that to keep in mind is when inflation goes up, historically rental properties do extremely well. Apartments, not not like residential, but apartments, because they tend to have shorter term leases, and those leases go up as inflation goes up. And historically, rental apartment rentals have been a good place to have money in high inflation environments. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Louis Giannis. Uh, he is the founder of Wealth Net Investments, which is based in Colorado, author of the new book, Financial Freedom Blueprint, Seven Steps to Accelerate Your Path to Prosperity. You can find out more at his website, pathtorealwealth.com. Thanks so much, Louis. We've learned an awful lot from you in the last hour. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.